Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, from the Hilton Hotel in downtown Toronto. Welcome to the 112th season of the Empire Club of Canada. And uh, I've got to tell you, 112 years, it makes you think a lot about the history of this club. It has become an icon in this country in many ways. And uh, in fact, uh, I said to our audience for Rachel Notley on Friday, and I'll repeat it today, uh, for those of you around next Monday night, October 12th, tune in to Murdoch Mysteries, and you will see a special episode on murder at the Empire Club. And uh, I understand it's uh, William Shatner is starring in the role of Mark Twain, who makes a speech at the Empire Club, which apparently gets him into a whole lot of trouble. So, interesting, uh, and of course it, it speaks to the long, the long history of our organization. For those of you just joining us through either our webcast, our podcast, or on television through Rogers TV, welcome to the meeting. And before our distinguished speaker is introduced today, it gives me great pleasure to introduce our head table guests. I'd ask that each head table guest rise for a brief moment and be seated after his, name, his or her name is called. And I'd ask that the audience refrain from applauding, please, until all the head table guests have been introduced. In no particular order, Mr. Sam Mantenuto, Vice Chair and Chief Operating Officer, Northland Power, Inc. Mr. Kent Emerson, Director of Operations, Office of the Minister of Finance and a Director of the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Chris Donnelly, Vice President and Counsel, Industry, Regulatory and Government Affairs, Manulife. <clears throat> Mr. John Wilkinson, the President of Wilkinson Insight and former Ontario Minister of Environment, Revenue and Research and Innovation. Mr. Thomas Chanzy, Vice President, Public Affairs, the Ontario Trillium Foundation, and a director of the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Andrew Bevan, Principal Secretary, Office of the Premier of Ontario. Mr. Ivan Baker, Parliamentary Assistant to the President of the Treasury Board and MPP for Etobicoke Centre. Mr. Paul Foglin, Director, Government and Stakeholder Relations, Ontario Retirement Communities Association, and the first Vice President of the Empire Club of Canada. Mr. Gary Heising, Regional Manager, Northern Region, Northland Power Incorporated. Premier Kathleen Wynne, Premier of Ontario. My name is Gordon McIver. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our meeting. And As is our tradition, we have a group of students joining us today and this week from the Ted Rogers School of Management at Ryerson University. Students, would you please rise and be recognized? We have a lot of elected officials and VIPs in the room today. I'd like to uh, recognize the ministers. Minister, and perhaps they could stand and, uh, and be acknowledged as I call their name. Starting with Minister Michael Gravel. Welcome, Minister. Minister Mitzi Hunter. Minister Mario Sergio. Minister Stephen Del Duca. Minister Kevin Flynn. Madame la Ministre Madeleine Meilleur. Minister David Zimmer. 
And we're extremely honoured, ladies and gentlemen, as well, to welcome today the former Prime Minister of Canada, the Right Honourable John Turner. Welcome, sir. And we have a lot of MPPs in the room. If they could all stand up, please, and be recognised. And I want to uh, acknowledge my own MPP, uh, Catherine McGarry. Thrilled to have you from Cambridge. Catherine, welcome. The 25th Premier of Ontario has become, has become quite literally a household name and really does not require another recitation of her extremely admirable biography. So let me instead use this introduction to place her speech today into some kind of historical context from the Empire Club perspective, as we know that this club is quite possibly, as I mentioned earlier, one of the most iconic institutions in our country and has the advantage of being able to look back through thousands of addresses throughout its 112-year history. Now, many people forget that the Ontario's 25th Premier is also the province's Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs. She's therefore not only addressing the Empire Club of Canada today as Premier, but as the Minister of the Ontario Government responsible for ensuring that her province's relationships with other jurisdictions are operating at an optimal level. This interplay between different levels of government has long been a topic of relevance at the Empire Club of Canada, which was itself set up during a time at the dawn of the 20th century where there was a great turmoil between Canada and Great Britain, with much discussion in the country about abandoning the relationship with Great Britain and joining the United States of America. The origins of this club were to ensure that the young Canada would not join its southern neighbour, but rather remain faithful to what was then known as the British Empire. It is the mandate of the club today, as it was in 1903 when it was founded under the leadership of Brigadier General James Mason, to bring before the Canadian public people in positions of power and influence who can present their perspective and contribute to the national dialogue. Now, other than the bias of not wishing to join the United States and sever ties with the British Empire, there was no Empire Club agenda, and views from all those in positions of power and influence were welcomed without partisanship, as, and we have remained true to that mandate since that time in 1903. At the club's founding... Sir George William Ross was the fifth Premier of Ontario, and the Liberal Party had been in power for almost 30 years. Wow. Premier, you must like that part of the story. <laughs> One thing that Premier Ross was always committed to was maintaining good governance and the proper relationship with other jurisdictions, which, of course, in his day would have meant between the King, Canada, and the provinces. He actually addressed this very topic at our podium on May 23, 1910, after he'd left provincial politics and gone to the Senate. In a speech entitled The Place of the King in the British Constitution, he speaks clearly about a major governance issue of the day, namely that even the King's representatives in Canada and its provinces had to abide by the voice of the people, the electorate. And I quote from that speech. In 1900, the Honourable Mr. McInnes, Lieutenant Governor of British Columbia, dismissed his ministers and called upon the Honourable Joseph Martin to form a new government. Mr. Martin appealed to the country and was defeated. Mr. McInnes expected that the country would sustain the dismissal of his former advisers, but as he failed in obtaining the support of the electorate, he was himself dismissed and a new lieutenant governor appointed in his place. 
The constitutional practice seems to be that where the head of the executive government dismisses his advisors and fails to be supported by the electors, that his immediate retirement from office is necessary in order to maintain harmony afterwards in the administration of the government. In the case of the king, the only amends practicable is the restoration of the ministers possessing the confidence of the Canadian public. Now, we, of course, live in very different gov- a governance regime in 2015 than was the case in the early days of this club's history. But what remains identical is the ongoing struggle to make different government jurisdictions work effectively together in a confederation that has been called difficult to manage because of its enormous challenging geography matched by the diversity of opinion on how best to achieve that goal. From this perspective, Minister Wynne's presentation today falls squarely into the theme of how Canada's various jurisdictions should work together for optimal efficiency. It is a theme that we've explored often and in multiple scenarios over our 112 seasons, and we're delighted the Premier Wynne will today continue to add her voice to that national debate, as have so many others of every political stripe before her. Fortunately, it is a debate that Canadians do not shy away from, whether discussing relationships with the monarchy and its representatives or between our three basic levels of government. And it is a debate that has always made our democracy stronger and more resilient as a result. So, ladies and gentlemen, it's my very distinct pleasure to welcome, once again, in fact, for the third time to our podium, the 25th Premier of Ontario, Kathleen Wynne. Thank you very much. Thank you very, very much. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. Thank you very much, Gord, for that perfectly historical introduction. Thank you. That's uh, that's great. I got to sign a book today that is the I got I'm the second last signature in the book that started in 1963. So there you go. It's wonderful. The history of this organization is uh, is wonderful and uh, thank you all of you for being here today. It's uh, it's wonderful to be here with all of you. Uh, I want to begin as I do by acknowledging that we're on the traditional territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit. By recognizing the First Nations and Métis peoples of Ontario, we show them respect not only for their place in our history, and we've started with history uh, this afternoon, but for the important contributions that they continue to make today. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to do that. I'm, I'm here this afternoon to talk about leadership, about the leadership that, uh, yes, we are providing to the people of Ontario, and about the kind of national leadership that's required to truly deliver on that promise of Canada that we all hold dear. And so um, Gord's introduction in terms of that ongoing discussion we've had in this country because of the nature of our federation is, uh, is apropos. And no, it is no coincidence that I'm here on the eve of a federal election. I'm here because we are close to decision day in a very important national election. So that's just full disclosure. It's really an important moment. As Ontarians and as Canadians, we need national leadership that understands that we must work together to invest in a better future for us all. Les Ontariens et les Canadiens ont besoin d'un leadership national qui croit en la collaboration pour investir dans un avenir plus prometteur pour tous. 
In these, what I can describe as difficult times, it's critical that we elect a government that will create jobs, that will reduce inequality, protect our environment, and improve our quality of life by renewing the infrastructure on which we all rely. Now, that's a long list, and I understand that that's a big challenge, but there's nothing in that list that we can afford not to do. All of those things have to be tackled. So today we're only two weeks away from that federal election, and I know for leaders, for party workers, and many of you are in the room, I know there are candidates in the room, it's been a long campaign, although Bill Morneau told me it's his first campaign, so what does he know? It's just, that's what a campaign is. So Bill, you're here today because you still got energy. You don't know that it's long. It's really long. And I'm sure it has felt even longer to the people who are on the ground every single day. And as someone who has campaigned both as an aspiring MPP and as a party leader, I think all the time about all the doors I've knocked on and to the, I think about the noise and the energy and the rush that uh, comes as you open the bus door. Truly connecting with the people we represent and serve is such a wonderful feeling. And the best part of every day on the campaign trail. But the most energizing thing about an election is that sense of possibility that I think we all feel. The prospect of all you can accomplish if you earn a mandate from the people. And that's why people are by turns apprehensive or anticipatory about what will happen on election day. And such a privilege is not to be wasted. It's not something to be afforded to a party that's out of ideas or out of touch. We all should entrust our national government to a leader and a party with new ideas and new energy that suit the times and meet our needs. Nous devrions confier le gouvernement national à un chef et à un parti qui ont une nouvelle énergie et de nouvelles idées qui correspondent à notre époque et qui répondent à nos besoins. As Premier, and I have said this, I will repeat it, I will work in partnership with any Prime Minister who is committed to building for the future. That's what we need. But I will never hesitate at the same time I will never hesitate to stand up for our province. It's part of my job. I've done quite a bit of that in the past two and a half years, more actually than I thought I would have to. But when a prime minister declares that he's delighted to thwart the will of a duly elected government with a mandate to improve retirement security, just for example, you are darn right. I am going to fight back. I am going to stand up for the people of Ontario. thing. I believe that the hardworking people of Ontario deserve a national government that supports them, not one that stands in the way of progress. More than a century ago, Wilfrid Laurier spoke of the imperative for government to not only fix small problems, but to open up new horizons, to seek forward motion and progress. Government should not be timid. It has to be bold. It should not seek refuge in fear. It must speak in an optimistic voice to the very best of us. Above all, government should not shy away from challenges. It must confront them. In fact, I would suggest that that is what government exists to do. It's not easy, but it's what it is in place to do. It takes time, it takes effort and determination, and you do not win every battle. That's a reality but it is the only way to achieve real progress.
On behalf of Ontarians, we're dedicating ourselves to opening up new horizons. After being re-elected last year with a majority mandate, we went straight to work, delivering on our prom promises and striving to build greater opportunity and security for those who we represent and serve. And we are already seeing important signs of progress. For the second year in a row, we were the number one place in North America for foreign direct capital investment. Exports, high school graduation rates, and job numbers are all up over last year. The economy is growing stronger. There is more to do, but we're seeing those positive signs. And our goal is pretty straightforward. We're dedicated to building Ontario up, making what is a great province even greater for the generations to come. But to fully achieve our goal, we need a federal partner who's willing to listen first and then is eager to engage and prepared to act. All Canadians deserve a national government that is focused not simply on winning an election, but on using its mandate to make a measurable and positive impact in people's lives. Tous les Canadiens et les Canadiennes méritent un gouvernement national qui met l'accent non pas simplement sur la victoire aux élections, mais aussi qui exerce une influence mesurable et positive sur la vie des gens. As provinces, I know, and of course, there is a lot that we can do, and we are doing on our own, in healthcare, in education, and beyond. Any measure of leadership demands tough decisions today at every level of government. That is the only path to a better future, and it's the path that we are very proud to walk here in Ontario. But the nature of our federation is such that greater achievement is possible when there's genuine cooperation between federal, provincial, and territorial governments. And that's especially true when governments are of the same mind about how best to address the challenges of the day. Finding that alignment is really important. So today I want to focus on five key areas where national leadership can help improve the lives of people in Ontario, and indeed in the whole of Canada. The first is the fight against climate change. Climate change represents the single greatest threat to our health and prosperity for today, but most seriously for generations to come. It's our responsibility to confront this challenge. Here in Ontario, we are moving forward. The closure of our coal-fired power plants uh, represents North America's single largest initiative to combat global warming. And we're joining the far-sighted jurisdictions of the world by in introducing a cap-and-trade system to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we intend to link our carbon market with California and Quebec under the Western Climate Initiative. In fact, I'm going to be traveling to California in the near future. We're going to be discussing clean tech and other important initiatives where we can learn from each other. And the reality is that so far, almost all of Canada's momentum on the climate change file has been generated by the provinces. I will just say that again, has been generated by the provinces. And that's the national success, but it's been generated at the provincial level. And here in Ontario, we're very proud to be at the forefront of that progress. Subnational governments cannot and are not waiting to be told that it's time to act. We're showing the way. And we're demonstrating that good environmental policy is also good economic policy. But we need national leadership as well. 
In particular, Ontarians need a federal government that will step up and deliver support for energy-saving retrofits, investments in clean energy, along with stable funding for public transit in partnership with our government, um, and, with our government and municipalities. So those are very specific things that the federal government could be doing to support provinces and support municipalities. Our international reputation, Canada's international reputation, would be enhanced by a Prime Minister who's willing to accompany the Premiers to this fall's Paris Conference on Climate Change, and at the same time, take on a real and meaningful leadership role, not only at the negotiating table, but on a day-to-day basis. And in fact, that's the only way that Canada will become a true leader in the fight against climate change. To be blunt, we cannot afford another decade of inaction. We have to move beyond words and indifference. We have to adapt, we have to change, we have to innovate, and all of that begins with a national government that's willing to show real leadership on climate change. The second area is improving and advancing Canada's place in the world. Now, I was just talking about our place in the world vis-a-vis climate change, but there's a more general issue about Canada's place in the world. In particular today, I'd like to talk about how we welcome the world to our province and how we compete in the global economy. We've all been moved by the heartbreaking plight of Syrian refugees. Ontario is ready and willing to accept more refugees and to help them to settle here. L'Ontario est prête à accepter un plus grand nombre de réfugiés et les aider à s'établir ici. We recently announced $10.5 million in new funding to support relief efforts in the region and to help expedite the settlement of refugees across the province. But here's the thing. The number of refugees entering our province and how quickly they can arrive is at the sole discretion of the federal government. And the current federal system is not moving fast enough to meet the urgent needs of refugees, nor is it moving fast enough to meet the high expectations that Canadians have for our country to act with compassion, as we have done throughout our history. So it is absolutely necessary and critical to have in place the right security measures and requirements for documentation. No one would argue with that. But even within those parameters, I believe that there's more that can be done to expedite the process. And we need national leadership that steps up to meet the challenge of that humanitarian crisis. We need national leadership to help those whose lives, through no fault of their own, are defined by chaos, hardship, and threat. So I will continue to call on a federal government to do that. Canadians? Yes. So just another bit on the Canada's place in the world. Can- Canadians also require more active leadership on trade. The hard reality is that we continue to lag behind many countries when it comes to accessing certain markets, especially in Asia. So as a result, our economic potential is not being fully realized. Now, I realize that there is a, a trade agreement that has apparently been signed. We don't know the details of, uh, of that agreement at this point, but um, in Ontario, our going, our going global strategy is about building on the connections of our diverse population. So we've recognized already that this is critical. Last fall, I traveled to China with representatives of our clean tech industry. We did a billion dollars worth of deals. We sowed the seeds for future opportunities that will further advance our partnership because it is not enough to pay 
pay lip service to building trade relationships. We need to do a better job of selling ourselves to the world. And in fact, that's what people from around the world say to me, is that we need to be better about telling our Ontario story. So that's why I'll be returning to China this fall on a second trade mission. And in early 2016, I'll lead a mission to India with a focus on sustainable development and infrastructure. I'll follow that with a springtime trade mission to Israel with companies involved in healthcare and life sciences research and development. But again, to complement the work that we're doing as a province and to achieve our full potential, we need that national leadership that understands the federal role in establishing a stronger foothold in Asia and other important markets on the ground with those strong relationships. And that brings me to the third area, transit and infrastructure. It's so important that we invest today to reduce traffic congestion and renew our essential infrastructure all across the province, not just in the GTHA. We're already demonstrating our commitment. Our government has a plan and is has started to invest more than $130 billion over 10 years, and that is the largest such investment in Ontario's history. Nous avons l'intention d'investir plus de 130 milliards de dollars sur 10 ans, soit l'investissement le plus, le plus important de toute l'histoire de l'Ontario. That means the creation of new roads, it means better transit, it means bridges, new hospitals and schools, and it means the renewal of the energy and water infrastructure that need to remain competitive and drive sustainable growth across our economy. Those investments do drive our competitiveness. They drive our productivity. It also means that we need to make tough decisions because all of that has to be paid for. I spoke earlier about the importance of acting today in order to make those decisions on difficult issues and that that's how you get to a better tomorrow. Broadening the ownership of Hydro One is, for example, one of those difficult decisions. It's not easy, but it is the right thing to do because it's helping us to make the infrastructure investments that we need to build Ontario up. I told people in the election last year that we have to be fiscally responsible and could not just keep borrowing, that we had to leverage existing assets to make new investments. So. We are doing our part, including making those tough decisions. And the federal government can do its part by substantially increasing investment in infrastructure, driving productivity and growth, improving quality of life, reducing pollution and emissions, and making our cities and towns even more attractive to the best talent in the world. The fourth area is working more collaboratively with Aboriginal peoples. Now, I started my remarks by acknowledging the traditional territory, but it goes way, way beyond that. Across our country, there is an imperative to build new and better relationships with First Nations, Métis, and Inuit peoples. There is no excuse for any government to ignore the abuses of our past relationship, nor to stand idly by as our fellow Canadians continue to live in distressing conditions. And when I talk about that, I'm talking about distressing conditions in our urban centres, but also in the north on reserve. Il n'y a pas d'excuse pour ignorer les abus que nous avons commis par le passé ou de rester muets alors que nos compatriotes canadiens vivent dans des conditions déplorables. We cannot, with any integrity, talk of a healthy, harmonious, pluralistic society until we forge a new relationship with the people whose ancestors were here long before most of ours. Our government is playing its part 
But this is an area, like the others, where we cannot do it alone. We need leadership from a national government, real leadership that includes a genuine commitment to breaking that cycle of despair. As a start, accepting and acting on the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, that's a pledge that's already been made by Canada's premiers, would be a practical and symbolic step in the right direction. It's also essential that our federal government stop abdicating its responsibility to missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls and agree to a national inquiry. What this requires is an understanding of past wrongs and a commitment to change. And it demands forward-looking policies that provide serious hope and meaningful change for today's Aboriginal youth. Nearly half of the Aboriginal population in Canada is under 25 years of age. These communities are growing at four times the rate of the non-Aboriginal population. So even if, let's say, you set aside the moral obligation, which is acute, but set it aside, that moral obligation to help Aboriginal communities succeed, the economics alone demand national leadership. Because if we fail to improve the education and job prospects of Aboriginal youth today, we will have a serious economic problem tomorrow in the north and in urban centres. So it is in everyone's best interest that we have this work underway at all levels of government. Finally, the fifth area, pensions. We face a serious challenge in our province and in our country. Young people are not able to save enough for their retirement. That is, that is the fact. And fewer and fewer companies are offering the kinds of pensions that were the norm for previous generations. Only a third of Ontarians have a workplace pension plan. There is an enormous and widening gap between what people are actually able to save and what they will need to maintain a comparable standard of living in retirement. So we need national leadership to address this challenge before it becomes a crisis. And I, I, I actually have to be frank because I find myself astonished listening to some of the voices on the federal campaign trail. Only the truly short-sighted could look at a pension contribution and describe it as a tax. We know better, you know better, a pension is a real, tangible and beneficial investment in our own personal future and in the future of the province and the country that we share. That's not even splitting hairs. That's just what it is. So, surely there's no one who doubts that Canadians, our economy, our society have benefited from the creation of the Canada Pension Plan. The lack of leadership from our federal government forced us to create the Ontario Retirement Pension Plan. We were not going to stand by and watch hardworking people move toward a retirement in which their standard of living would sharply decline. Under our plan, every employee in Ontario will, by 2020, have the added retirement security of either the ORPP or a comparable work pay, workplace pension plan. That is the way it should be in a province and a country that places a value on its people and a priority on ensuring that they can experience a fulfilling life in retirement. 
So there's a thread that connects these five things, and uh, these priorities and actions are, they are the foundation of why I have been making this argument throughout this federal campaign. True leadership is about acting today for tomorrow. It's about governing beyond the horizon and beyond the next election date. And government can do a lot. It can't do everything, and it shouldn't try. Much of the success that we share in Ontario and across Canada is, of course, the result of efforts of private citizens, women and men who have built farms, built businesses, created jobs, formed unions, volunteered in their communities, raised families and formed social advocacy, advocacy groups, and created art. But government can make a positive difference. It can contribute to building a better province and a better country so long as it is led by someone with a passion for service and a clear, sensible plan on how to invest now in a manner that will pay future dividends. So we must think beyond tomorrow, no matter what the challenges are that that thinking brings. And frankly, that's my understanding of what we've always done in Canada. That is how we have built such a successful and enviable country. Whether it's the Canadian Pacific Railway or the, uh, the CPP or whether it's Medicare or free trade or whether it's the Colonial Accord, our national leaders have looked beyond their mandate and beyond their lifetimes to move Canada forward. We need that same leadership today. We need a leader with the courage to invest in Canadians now and work in cooperation with the provinces and territories to build an even more prosperous country. Nous avons besoin d'un chef qui ait le courage d'investir dans les Canadiens et les Canadiennes et qui collabore avec les provinces et les territoires pour bâtir un pays encore plus prospère. So I want to reiterate. As Premier of Ontario, I will work in partnership with any Prime Minister who is truly dedicated to building our country. But I also want to be direct with you. In this campaign, I believe that only one party has demonstrated a genuine commitment to make the investments that Canadians need today, investments that will create jobs and fuel economic growth for tomorrow and beyond. And you will not be surprised to hear <laughs> that, well, maybe you will. Do you know what I'm going to say? <laughs> You'll not be, you will not be surprised to hear that it's why I hope that on October 19th, the province that embraced me and my party last year will support Justin Trudeau's Liberal Party and their clear plan. It's not like I haven't said it before, right? <laughs> So that is, that, is, uh, that is the position that I have taken. But let me conclude with this. Most of you in this room will be familiar with the legacy of Nellie McClung. She was the daughter of an immigrant farmer. Nellie was formally schooled for only a handful of years, and she didn't learn to read until she was 10. And yet, she became a prolific author and an outspoken advocate for women's rights. On Parliament Hill, not far from the majestic statue of uh, Wilfrid Laurier, there's a monument to McClung and the other members of the famous five. 
And it's a representation of perseverance and ambition. It's a reminder of what we can all achieve when we set our minds to it. Nellie McClung spoke and wrote passionately about the urgency of progress. There's a simple but inspiring line that she, uh, she used that has stuck with me, and she said, and I quote, yesterday's successes will not do for today, unquote. We should be proud of our past accomplishments, but we have to be motivated by the need to press on as we search for true equality, greater opportunity, and security for all. Those are such important goals, and we have to keep reaching for them. But achieving them today requires bold and confident national leadership. So when you make your choice on October 19th, I hope you will be thinking not only of today, not only of ourselves today, but also of tomorrow and the many, many lives that are going to be shaped by the decision that we make together. That is the thought I hope you take into that ballot box. Merci, miigwech. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, to express our collective appreciation from the Ontario Trillium Foundation, Thomas Chanzy. Thank you, Gordon. Uh, my name is uh, Thomas Chanzy. As Gordon just said, I'm, I'm the Vice President of Public Affairs at the Ontario Trillium Foundation. I'm actually not speaking on behalf of the Foundation. I'm speaking because I'm a director at the Empire Club of Canada as well. And it's an honor for me to uh, thank uh, Premier Wynne uh, on behalf of the Empire Club and its guests uh, today. Um, We've been privileged uh, at the Empire Club these recent days with the visit of the Premier of Alberta on Friday and the visit of the Premier of Ontario today. Uh, thank you for your passionate speech uh, on the topic that I know is close to your heart. It was pretty obvious. Uh, I'm not going to comment. Uh, that's on my role. I will leave it to the media in the room. Uh, but when I say that you delivered a passionate speech, I, I really mean it. You, were, you said... You were blunt, you were direct, you, you spoke with passion, you spoke with determination, uh, you spoke with sincerity. Uh, I've had the chance to hear you speak publicly many, many times, and every time we can feel how uh, authentic you are, and every time we can feel how genuine you are, it's, it's something that I, we hear a lot when, when you speak uh, from, the people, from the people who are listening to you. Um, I think that speaks to your character. Uh, and every time I listen to you deliver a speech, uh, it reminds me of one of the first times I met you. Uh, you may not remember it, Premier, uh, but allow me to remind you. And we haven't prepared this, so you don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I'm in the communication field. I need to tell a story uh, to thank you today. Um, so allow me to share, you, uh, to share a personal story with, with our audience. Uh, for those in the room who, who don't know me, uh, I actually worked at Queen's Park for five years. Uh, I worked for Madeleine Meyer, who is in the room. Madame Meyer. Uh, I was a communication advisor and then a, a chief of staff, and I joined Madame Meyer in, in 2008, at the time you were Minister of Education. Uh, and I swear, I, I didn't have that accent. I had that accent before working for Madame Meyer. Huh? <laughs> uh, 
so one of my first assignments uh, when I joined Queen's Park was actually to work with your office and with my good friend Pierre Cyr, uh, who's here, uh, to organize monthly francophone social events uh, for you. Uh, I believe that at the time you took uh, summer classes in Trois Pistoles in Quebec, uh, and you, you wanted to practice your French with French-speaking people living in the GTA. Uh, you remember? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> So why I'm telling this story, what was fascinating is that um, at those gatherings, like you didn't know who would show up, like Pierre and I were like, sending invitations, and, um, and you were very open, direct, very candid, um, and you know, ready to talk to anybody who would show up at those events. They were not focus groups, there was no agenda at all, uh, you just wanted to speak French on matters that were on people's mind at the time. Um, and so why I'm telling this story is because I could see again the candor the sincerity that you showed at those francophone social events, and, and I'm sure I'm speaking about the, those francophone events because I know them, but I know you, you behave the same way with all the other communities. So some in the room may not agree with uh, your policies or your idea, and that's fine, but there's one thing that we can all agree on, is that today you spoke with passion, you spoke with determination, as I said, and in fact you spoke from your heart. And Premier, thank you for opening your heart to the Empire Club today. Thank you. Merci. Thank you, Thomas, <clears throat> and thank you once again, Premier. I'd like to also thank our generous sponsors today, ladies and gentlemen, Northland Power for sponsoring our, our main event, Manulife for sponsoring the VIP reception, and Bell Canada for sponsoring our student table. I'd also like to thank uh, our na the National Post, which is our uh, national media sponsor, and Rogers Television, our television broadcaster. We'd also like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event uh, right, right around the world. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at Empire underscore Club and follow us online at EmpireClub.org. You can also follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And please join us again. We've got some great events coming up this fall, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, next week, we have Dr. Graham Schur stopping by, the CEO of Canadian Blood Services. He'll be here on October 13th at the Arcadian Court. Uh, the following day, October 14th, we have Michael Medline, the President and CEO of Canadian Tire uh, at the Arcadian Court as well. And uh, while I see so many red ties in the room, I should also mention that Minister Glenn Murray is joining us on November 5th at the Sheraton Hotel. And finally, uh, you won't want to miss the Governor of the Bank of Canada on December the 8th, who is going to come by and do a major address on Canada's economic performance over the past year and how that bodes going forward for 2016. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your attendance today. This meeting is now adjourned.